of you. It's great to see you all. I'm Helena Kennedy and I'm the principal here at Mansfield College. And this, in fact, is the first of our uh, uh, Mansfield series for um, this new academic year. And who better than that great public intellectual Steve Jones, biologist, to come and give this lecture. And as you see, it was titled Nature, Nature Nurture or Neither. And uh, it's a view, the view from the genes. Um, I got to know Steve some years ago, but I particularly really got to know him um, when I was chairing the Human Genetics Commission. And basically what I know about genetics, which is not a vast amount, but what I do know, I learned from him. <laughs> and, uh, and his books were really great because he's a great communicator. Um, of complex ideas, and, uh, and I, he's promised me that it will be reasonably middle-brow tonight, um, so that it's not too difficult for folk like me who are not scientists. But um, one of the great strengths of Steve Jones is that he's able to bring us all into this sort of the magic of that world of science in which he is such an expert. Can I introduce to you Steve Jones? I have to say, when I said a moment ago that uh, it was Middlebrough, I said, I, I realised this isn't Cambridge. Oh, you better be very careful. He's at London University, and he went to Edinburgh University, and he's a Welshman. And uh, so, so, you know, he's got no connection with Oxford or Cambridge, so when he insults us, he also insults them just as regularly. So, this, uh, this um, object on the screen is a little brass, um, or bronze, uh, statue of that tall, that sat on the, in a niche on the staircase in the University of Edinburgh Zoology Department when I was a student longer ago than I like to admit. And I was in Edinburgh for 10 years. I did my PhD there and I was on staff there as well. And I must have walked past the damn thing thousands and thousands of times. And it's still there. I saw it last year when I was up there. There is one change. In my day, it was just sitting there. Now it's screwed down. <laughs> it tells you something about the modern world. But uh, I walked past it many times. And uh, I never really looked at it, but if you look at it, you'll see it's actually rather an interesting uh, little construction. What we've got is a chimpanzee sitting on a pile of books with a puzzled expression on his face, looking at a human skull in his hand. And if you look more carefully, you will see that one of the books is written by Darwin. Uh, and uh, if you look more carefully again on the right, you will see that on the open page there is, uh, of the book which is below him, there's written the words, Eritus Secret Deus. Okay. Now, of course, I don't, this being Oxford, I don't need to translate that. <laughs> uh, but um, I, before the days of Google, I never bothered to find out what it was. Or oh, I have to say, I do have old level Latin, I've forgotten most of it. Um, but actually, it's rather an interesting phrase. It's the phrase from the Vulgate, um, the Latin Bible, which is what the serpent says to Adam and Eve, or to Eve. Um, if you eat this fruit, in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Eretis secret Deus, scientes bonum et malum. And scientes was knowledge, the word science wasn't invented until the 19th century. Okay. So um, that's, uh, the, the suggestion is that science will give you knowledge, and it will give you in particular a knowledge of good and evil. And that notion comes from uh, perhaps a rather strange idea I had, and I wrote my most recent book, which is in fact called The Serpent's Promise, available in all good bookshops. Um, I've just signed a few in Blackwell, so they sell at a discount because the unsigned ones are much rarer. Um, <laughs> and, and it was an attempt to rewrite or update the Bible as if it were a scientific textbook. The, uh, the fancy behind it was that the Bible was, and it certainly was, an attempt to understand the world. In many ways, a very intelligent and clever attempt to understand the world, a lot of it naturally uh, outdated in descriptive terms, but I thought I would try and do this. I have had what's best called mixed reviews. Um, one of them was in the Sunday Times. Once again, uh, Jones cranks the battle, the battle organ of, of Darwinism with the monkey of atheism gibbering on the top. Uh, we, we put that on the back of the paperback. <laughs> but what's interesting, actually, is that many of the questions asked in the Bible do have a direct uh, reflection in modern science. For example, uh, before Adam and Eve commit the first this, uh, eat the fruit, they commit when they do. When they do, they commit the first and perhaps least original of all sins. 
which is they recognize they're male and female, uh, they put on aprons, and they have sex. And from that, of course, we are all marked uh, with original sin, which you must purge in one way or another. And in fact, genetics, in some senses, is the study of inborn human weaknesses, inborn human strengths too. And there's quite a parallel between some of the questions asked by theologians about original sin and some of the assumptions made about genetics by people who think they understand it, but perhaps don't quite entirely do so. Um, so there are theological questions. Uh, grossly oversimplified. Um, this is Pelagius, as uh, you probably know. Oh, sorry, this is Calvin, John Calvin, a very upright Scottish type of character. Uh, you're all doomed. Um, and uh, he basically said that God knows everything. Um, by the decree of God, the manifestation of God, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life and others to everlasting death. In other words, you're born the way you are and you can do nothing about it. Uh, you can't attain heaven by good works. God knows who's going to go and who isn't going to go. Um, and uh, that leads to all kinds of peculiar ramifications. Um, a wonderful book called The Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which is based exactly on that. If somebody believes they're going to go to heaven and goes around murdering people, so it's a marvelous, marvelous book there, slightly by the point. Uh, but we can rephrase the, um, the Calvinistic view by saying it's in the genes. You've got this gene, there's nothing you can do about it. Okay? But there's another, there's another, there's a heresy, the Pelagian heresy, the heresy of free will, which is that obedience results from a decision of the mind, not a substance of the body. In other words, if you decide to live a good life, you will go to heaven. If you behave badly, of your own volition, you will go to hell. Okay? Uh, and that's, that's, we might say, says, it's in the environment. And there's yet another one, which is the Roman Catholic view, which is original sin made captive under the devil's power until they are redeemed therefrom by the blood of Christ. In other words, it's in the genes, but choose the right environment, the Catholic Church, and you'll be okay. We've got the antidote, all right? So if you come to confession and so on, you'll be all right. So actually, these are three very modern views about inheritance. It's inevitable, it's doomed, it's irrelevant, or it's curable. And I want to explore those three with some examples which are perhaps a little bit um, uh, uh, fairly up to date. Now it's clear that genetics is important. I start my first year of genetics in UCL, that's the University of London, by the way, University of London, um, uh, with 550 kids in my first year of genetics class this year. And I tell them to look to the person to their left, if you might like to do this, and the person to their right. And I say with some accuracy that two out of the three of them will die for reasons connected to the genes they carry. Now, they seem a bit gloomy about that. <laughs> but it's accurate. Um, but, um, and because, uh, but I said, cheer up. If I'd be giving this lecture in Shakespeare's time, two out of every three of you would be dead already. <laughs> and that's true. Because if we take the, um, birth, the survival of children in 1601, when Shakespeare was alive, only one in three made it to be 21. Even just before Darwin's time, 1801, just more than half, now about 99% of children make it to be 21. Uh, of course, in Shakespeare's time, even in Darwin's time, they died of things like starvation, cholera, violence, TB, um, cold, things that came from outside. Now we die from what a now forgotten politician once called the enemy within, okay? Uh, things like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, all of which undoubtedly have a strong genetic component. So it's very hard to um, deny that genetics is important. I'm not denying that at all. But quite what it means is perhaps a little bit um, more subtle. You know, right? So it's um, <coughs> human genetics, in some senses, began with this chap here, Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's cousin. And he was an astonishingly intelligent man. He was interested in human quality. And he was convinced that human quality, whatever it was, um, was it resided, as we would say today, in the genes. Um, and he wrote this book, Relatively Genius, Relatively uh, Genius. He measured quality in different ways. He's, as far as I know, the only person ever to have made a beauty map of the British Isles. And we still have a small brass counting device, which he carried in the palm of his hands, walking through British cities, scoring the local females on a five-point scale from attractive to repulsive. Um, the, the low point was in Aberdeen. <laughs> 
I filed outside Harrods in South Kensington, so not, <laughs> not much has changed. Uh, but, um, but actually, Galton was convinced that everything that made us what we are resided in our biology. Now, he invented the word eugenics. He, uh, I was once, somewhat to my shame, president of the National Institute of Eugenics. Um, it has a lot of money, which we tried to get on them and failed. And eugenics led, as we all know, and I don't need to go into, into various terrible disasters. Um, not particularly in Britain, but certainly in many other parts of, uh, of, of, of Europe and elsewhere. Now, Galton was a man of overweening competence. He was a Cambridge graduate, I have to um, And uh, he was convinced he was right. He was absolutely convinced he was right. Uh, Darwin was, I'm not Cambridge graduate, um, was a man, he was a scientist. Darwin was a scientist, and as such, by definition, he was a pessimist. He wasn't sure about anything. That's the definition of being a scientist, is being uncertain. And Darwin once came up in a letter with a phrase, which I strongly recommend to you. It can be used under all circumstances. It can be written on student essays several times. Ignorance more frequently breeds confidence than does knowledge. And that's a really very telling phrase. I'm surprised it isn't better known. And it, it describes the public understanding of genetics better than other, any other phrase that I'm aware of. Because the, the less you know about the less you know about genetics, the more certain you are about its importance. And I just want to illustrate some examples of this. Here's a gentleman who used to be professor um, of education. That's his rather um, sinister uh, spad, special advisor, Cummings, behind him. Um, and uh, and uh, spad, Cummings tell, told um, his, uh, his boss that genetics was much more important than teaching. It was all in biology. There was no point in spending money on teachers, okay? which may be behind all this um, destruction of the of the level of the teaching profession that's happened in the last few years. Um, so it's complete confidence there, based perhaps not on complete understanding. Uh, that's quite a widespread thing. I've got some recent stuff. Um, uh, the journal Nature suddenly shows that about half of the animal's intellect is heritable. Well, that sounds as if it means something, but what it means a little bit, but it means much less than what they say there. Uh, for chimps, nature and nurture appear to contribute equally to intelligence. Okay. So that's intelligence. Um, we have, uh, of course, we have crime as well. This is BBC, the BBC uh, science page. Are we born good or evil? And there's a huge literature um, on the biology of crime, which I'll refer to briefly at the end. Um, in yesterday's Independent, there was a completely bizarre headline. Uh, the Independent, the English are born grumpy, but things could be worse, it could be French. And that turns on a variant in a... Receptor, serotonin receptor, uh, which is a relatively high frequency in England, but higher in France. Now, what the hell these people think they're talking about? I simply do not know. But in fact, the whole argument turns on what do we mean by something is genetic? Be more precise, what do we mean by something is heritable? And what, it, what is heritability? And you frequently see bandied around the statistic, which is probably right, that the heritability of intelligence is about 0.7. 70% of the total variation in a population is due to genetic variation. Quite what that means, I'll come back to. And that, I think, is based on family studies and so on. It's probably correct. I don't, I don't dispute that. But what it actually means is considerably less. People assume that because something is heritable, it is necessarily, necessarily in a Calvinistic way, it's there, it's unchangeable, it's in the genes. And here, if you go into Google and you Ask for scientists find the gene for, find the gene for short sleepers, religiosity, sweet tooth, uh, premature ejaculation, I'm not sure about that, but in that population. Um, but there are thousands of them, and people tend to assume if you found the gene, that's it. They're all Calvinists to, to a person, every single one of them. But that is not the case. The fact that something is genetic by no means at all excludes the importance of the environment. If anything, the opposite is true. Well, let me show you a couple. Of, uh, let me show you a couple of mutations that show that's the case. I've shown these many times. You may have seen this. Here is a cat mutant. Okay, this is a Siamese cat. Now we know an awful lot about this mutant. It's a pathway that makes a, melanin, uh, a pigment called melanin, dark pigment called melanin, um, and the 
If the pathway is completely blocked, you get a white cat. If you have a, if you have a perfectly functional pathway, you get a black cat. This one's interesting because it's partially blocked. And it's blocked in an, in an interesting way, which is quite common, which is that it's, uh, the pathway is damaged. The enzyme doesn't work um, under particular circumstances. The enzyme has been damaged slightly, which means that it will not work in the colder parts of the, sorry, in the warmer parts of the cat's, cat's body. Just simple chemistry, really. If you want to dissolve sugar in water, hot water is better than cold water. And if you want your enzymes to work, place it's cold, it's going to work much more effectively than somewhere that's warm. So that if you look at the cat, you look at the, uh, its nose, its ears, its tail, these are relatively cool. Um, this is a gentleman cat, it's rather a shy one, but its testicles are also cool, and they are, of course, both literally and metaphorically the coolest part of any male's body. Um, and you can see there that, that there we have a mutation, which is a straightforward mutation that we understand in considerable, um, in considerable detail. And many Siamese cat breeders have tried to breed relatively dark or relatively light cats by taking a dark animal, mating with another darkish animal, going on for many generations, and that kind of works. But you can do that in a different way. If you want a dark Siamese cat, keep it in a cold, if you want a white Siamese cat, keep it in a warm room, okay? That's all you need to do. That's exactly the same mutation, kept warm. Um, if you want a dark Siamese, if you want, a, if you want a, black, a dark Siamese cat, keep it in a cold room, you get a black cat, um, a rather expensive one, and here's somebody who has done something very strange with its kitten called Edward. Um, it shaved the initial E on the side, on its side and kept that cold, and it's grown its black initial in perfectly natural black fur and stalks the streets of London, striking terror into the local cat population, no doubt, particularly on, on, this, on this particular evening. Okay. Um, so the fact that something is genetic does not by any means mean that the environment is unimportant. If anything, as we'll see, it may mean the opposite. Okay. Um, so that's the first central point. Now the other central thing which I find very odd is that even accepting what little genetic actually means. The difference in attitudes we take towards people who have particular genetic abilities or inabilities. Sometimes we praise them, sometimes we damn them, um, sometimes we handicap them to get rid of those uh, inequalities, but there seems to be no consistency in the way we deal with genetic information. So let's talk about, let's remind ourselves what heritability is. I said it once and I'll say it again. Heritability is the proportion of total variation that's due to genetic variation. It depends on both nature and nurture. And you can have a high heritability for genetic reasons, for environmental reasons, or for both. And if you want to understand the genetics of any particular attribute, and people like chicken breeders and cattle and, uh, and uh, plant breeders most emphatically do, the first thing you absolutely have to do is to make the, to make the environment absolutely uniform. And if the, the environment is absolutely uniform and there's still got variation left, you have some case that genetics is being involved. You can have no case well, that genetics is involved um, simply by observing heritability. That's a very, very weak observation. And that's what people generally fail to understand. So let's talk about that in some real examples. Here's an interesting one. This is another, <coughs> another um, biblical quote from uh, Ecclesiastes. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. And here we have horses running to the finishing line. And I can take, take it from me, horse breeding, horse genetics, is a massive, massive business, um, because there are millions and millions of pounds um, behind the fastest horses. If, you, if you've got a very good pedigree from a very good, uh, from a very good stable, your horse is going to be worth millions. So we know an awful lot about the the, the inheritance of racing ability. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, because time and chance happeneth to them all. However good your particular horse might be, if another horse trips at random, your horse too is utterly doomed. So the fact that there's a genetics behind the speed of horses is irrelevant most of the time to the uh, results of a race. And in fact, you can ask, what is the heritability, the proportion of the variation, um, which is due to genetics in race winning, and the heritability of speed, and the heritability of speed um, on dry tracks in thoroughbreds is 0.4. 40 40% of the variation is due to genetic variation, but on wet tracks, it's only half as much because they slip and they fall. Okay. Again, heritability changing the environment. Well, you might think, well, that's a bit 
on, what does that mean? What's interesting is that because of the huge amount of research into equine genetics, we know a lot about the DNA behind some of these, um, some of these differences in speed. This is a horse called Neoctic, a famous horse, Canadian horse from the 1950s. Um, Neoctic was a spectacular short race winner. Um, it, uh, and Neoctic, of course, uh, sired probably a thousand offspring with, with the help of the Postal Service and a small uh, tube, test tube that still goes on. And there are many, many thousand direct descendants of the horse Neoctic now around. And we know, in fact, that Neoctic, we now know, had a mutation, an error in a particular growth factor called myostatin which is, uh, alters the rate at which muscles grow. And if you've got the change of the DNA letter T to C, your muscles grow bigger, faster, and harder, and you can sprint more effectively, okay? Um, and that's, uh, it's, uh, if you go and look at, at the winners and the losers, um, there's a company will do it for you in Dublin called Equidome, and you can see if you've got two copies of T, um, you're, uh, uh, you're very good at, at, long, at long races, two copies of C, you're very good at short races, um, the bottom there, and if you've got one of each, um, then you're intermediate. Let's see if we can make this one. Whoops, what have I done there? There we go. So TT, CT, and CC, and you're the, the length at which you do best at. And of course, that means now that people routinely test their foals when they're born in their, pedigree, in their pedigrees and their studs to see what they're going to be best at. And they train for um, that length, depending on the DNA. The interesting thing, of course, is that in principle, at least, you could sneak around the stables the night before the race, pull out one hair from the women, from the, from the racers, sequence it, it take you an hour, uh, cost you about five pounds, if that, on a chip, um, and bet on the ones which put the good genes on. And I take it for me, the racing industry is very, very worried about this. Um, but the interesting thing is, of course, what are they going to do with the information? Because what they do now, on their rather vague information about um, excellent horses, if you're an excellent horse, it's won lots of races, what happens? You have to have a handicap. You carry weights. And that's to make a, a, a metaphorical level playing field. Because if the same horse is won all the time, there'd be no fun at all. It would just be the, the betting industry would collapse, you'd know who's going to win, you would know everybody would bet on the winners, it would fail. So what do you do? Armed with genetic information about quality, you arrange the environment to get rid of the difference. And I'm giving, they haven't yet started doing DNA tests to do this, but I bet that they will. Okay. So that's one response. Rather in brackets, exactly the same thing happens with humans. Um, we have an enzyme, the H gene, angiotensin converting enzyme, um, about one third of us has got, in this room, will have a, uh, a variant which has got what we call an insertion, sorry, a deletion um, in it. Um, about a, a third of us have got two copies of an extra piece of DNA in the gene. Okay, it's got 287 DNA letters in it. About a third of us have got uh, two copies of the deleted version of DD, and, and about a third of us are, are um, one of each. Now, I happen to know what I've got. I happen to be a, a, a double deleted in that and many other senses. Um, but what's interesting is it has quite a dramatic effect. The guy who discovered this is a colleague of mine called Hugh Montgomery, who is an accident surgeon. Okay, I might call accident surgeons. He's a psychopath, I'm sure he'll forget me. Forgive me for saying that. And Hugh, Hugh, all surgeons are. All surgeons are. Elena's husband is a surgeon. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Hugh was interested in what to do with people with terrible car crashes and so on, bus crash. And uh, if you have a terrible accident, what surgeons always do is to go to the scene of the accident and do triage. They sort out the ones who are going to get better, uh, even if they're screaming in agony. They sort out the ones who are going to die, because there's nothing you can do for them. And you find the ones that if you go in as hard as you can, you may, you may save them. And there are various signs that people use, and, you know, how your pupils constructed, that kind of stuff, what's your breathing patterns, and so on and so forth. And it turned out that all of the predictors of whether you would survive turned on whether you had short or long um, um, uh, versions of this particular gene. And it turns out, let me try to get this right, uh, yeah. if you've got the long version, you're much better at dealing with low oxygen levels which is what happens if you had a crush accident. And Hughes, a remarkable man in many ways, uh, has always had an overwhelming desire to climb Everest without oxygen. He's climbed it with oxygen on a couple of occasions, and he's, a, he's an eighth, an eighth 
world quality tournament, but he discovered he had two versions of the wrong one, so he'll never climb um, uh, Everest without oxygen. At the top there, we've got people who have got two versions of the one, one by eye, and you'll see the people who've climbed it without oxygen, many more have got it. People who, have, who, who haven't succeeded, many more have got the other version. Perhaps more interesting, if you train for any event, the marathon, let's say, if you're DD, two shorts like me, you can train as much as you like, it makes no difference. Too bad, don't bother, go to the library. So <laughs> okay. But if you're going to win, you need two, two logs. So you can actually, again, you can see the environment and the genes are working together. But it's not as simple as that, because of course we have some magnificent um, runners, the sprinter or the marathon run, um, uh, runner. This is Mo Farah. The other chap is his identical twin, shares all his genes with him. Uh, they used to race when they were kids in Somalia. Uh, uh, Mo Farah came to Mo Farah came to Britain. Um, his brother stayed at home, and uh, now his brother's motor mechanic. And Mo Farah is probably the best athlete in the world. Although their genes are the same, but Mo Farah had the good fortune to go to a British state school and actually be very well trained by their sports department. Okay. So again, nobody denies the importance of genes, but it doesn't work unless you've got the right environment. I remember I once went to a talk by Daniel Barenboim, who was actually a reef lecture a few years ago, totally shambolic. They didn't prepare anything, it was very amusing. And uh, there were questions at the end, and somebody said to, to Daniel Barenboim, have you ever met a child prodigy like you? Because Barenboim you know, was the most astonishing talent at the age of five. And I said, oh, no, 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 I never met such a, never met such a person, but I met plenty of their parents. <laughs> <laughs> And that simply says, you know, it simply says you've got to have the environment and the talent to get to that level of, uh, of excellence. So let's perhaps go to a, um, a rather more serious issue here about genetics and particularly medical and social issues. Um, and this is where things really begin to get interesting. Um, people often see one's attributes of any kind as being a bit like a cake, which you can slice into a bit called nature and a bit called nurture, okay, gene and environment. Nature and nurture, by the way, is a phrase of Shakespeare's, Caliban in The Tempest, when they, when they curse him, oh, thy foul nature and nurture shall never stick. But you can't cut your attributes, whatever they are, from race running ability to height to intelligence um, into slices. You'd have to, you'd have to unbake the cake. Now, you might say you can't unbake a cake, but you can. You just have to eat it, you digest it, and it gets back to its constituents. So if you do this experiment too often, what happens? You get fat. And what I'm going to do now is to give you a picture of the increase in obesity, and this is obesity of a body mass index of 30, which is 30 pounds overweight, which is a lot. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's two and a half stone per those of, of us who still think like that, um, in the United States from 1985 on. So let's go on from 1985, 1990, beginning to get darker. The darker colours, of course, are more. We don't know about. Plenty of states have now got 10 to 15 percent of people who are obese. 1995, plenty of 20 percent. 2000, plenty, with, uh, plenty more. Um, now we're beginning to get into real trouble. Uh, up to a third of people are obese in some states. And in 2010, we can see in places like Texas, uh, as a standard, one person in three is grossly obese. Now, of course, that's tremendously important um, for health, from the health point of view. Um, and there's no question at all um, that uh, we need to know much more about it. The same problem is true in Britain, to a lesser extent. A gigantic tsunami of lard has crossed the Atlantic <laughs> and crashed upon these shores. We have many things to be proud of in Britain. And one of the things we should be proudest of is that we are, in fact, the fattest country in Europe. And this is the proportion of obesity rates in adults and the United Kingdom, right at the top or the bottom, 24% um, of us are obese. And we can draw a map of obesity in Britain. You can see, wow. rather surprisingly, the west of Scotland is not its uh, headquarters, but where I come from, which is West Wales here, um, huge amounts of obesity, and it's very striking, but of course obesity and poverty tend to go together. We live in a unique... to deep-fried Mars bars. I know it does. Surprisingly, but they're the figures. Um, um, maybe they don't eat enough of them. They smoke too much. Um, um, and um, we live in a unique moment in human history, where the poor are fat and the rich are thin. 
of course, historically, exactly the opposite would have been true. Uh, and that's because, of course, uh, the environment has changed. Uh, this is the, these are the risks of diabetes, for example, a very severe disease, um, well, in relation to waist um, uh, diameter in men and in women. I'm at 32, I have to tell you, in waist. Uh, I'm at very low risk. Somebody, a man who's got a 41-inch waist, his risk has gone up by about 15 times. And in parts of the United States, one teenager in three has got signs of adult onset diabetes, which is strongly associated with, um, with, uh, with, uh, with body mass. And that really is a disastrous state to be in, because diabetes is the worst kind of disease for any health system to deal with, because it leads to complicated symptoms, uh, which are generally not controllable, and if you take a long time to die. Uh, they don't, doctors don't like it. I, the ideal is something like a heart attack, when you die. You're in state one, then you're in state two, and it doesn't take any time. But this is going to cripple the already badly, severely damaged US health system. And the problem is, is around here. So, two. So, naturally, there's a lot of interest. Are there genes involved? If there are, are they going to tell us anything about what we can do? Well, let's ask that question. Um, uh, as I said, one of the reasons is uh, that food has got much cheaper, so the environment is certainly involved. But it's also the case that this obesity is without question heritable. Here's an American family. Okay, you can see a morbidly obese uh, parents and a morbidly obese child. And the heritability of body weight of obesity is about 0.7. of the variation in the population is due to genetic variation. Bear in mind what that means, which is about the same figure as IQ. Well, you might say, my goodness, it's all in the genes. Here, on the other hand, is a picture of their cat. It's one of the, um, the little-known facts of modern genetics, that fat people have fat pets. Have cats, have dogs, have goldfish, and of course they don't share any DNA with their cat, at least I hope they don't. What they do is they serve their cat too much food in just the same way as they themselves eat too much food. So it's a shared environment. Well, we see the picture of a fat cat. Here's a fat mouse. And this is an interesting mouse, because this mouse has a mutation in a gene, uh, which is called, makes a hormone, a protein hormone, that's called leptin, and it's an appetite hormone. Now, we all, of course, have appetite hormones just control our appetite. Huh? At UCL, we have a rule that we have to put in an advertising blurb every 15 minutes, and I should point out the first ever hormone was discovered in UCL, 1903, and it was, in fact, an appetite hormone. Um, but they're the hormones that make you feel hungry. What's less familiar is that, you know, the feeling of hunger, of course, but you're less familiar with the feeling of satiety. You've had a meal, you don't want any more. You go to McDonald's, you have a cheeseburger and a milkshake, you might have another one, but you're not going to have three, okay, most of the time. But this animal has got a hormone that's missing that gets rid of its sense of satiety. So however much it eats, it's going to stay hungry, and it will eat and eat and eat until it almost literally bursts, okay? Now, this gene is also found in humans very rarely. Here's a boy who's got a leptin deficiency, and uh, uh, it's a desperate thing for parents to have to deal with, because their baby is, thinks, feels it's starving to death, and screams and screams and screams, demanding food. And naturally, they will give it to him, and naturally, this lad gets morbidly obese, but a few injections of leptin, and he's cured, okay? Um, so you might say, well, there, there, there we've got a gene involved. Well, this is a classic example in genetics where we're rather good at understanding very rare conditions. We know a lot about conditions like, shall we say, muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis, which are pretty rare. We know much less about conditions like diabetes or heart disease, which are common. The idea of common genes for, com for common disorders is completely out of the window. This is rare. Um, and in general, if you look for the genes behind attributes like human height or human, uh, human intelligence or all these other things, you don't find them. That's one of the big... Oh, God, I, don't know the word that, I haven't got a strong enough word for it. The big disasters of modern genetics is the discovery that we can't find the genes. Height is highly heritable. We found 190 genes last time I looked, which affect human height, and altogether they explain less than 10% of the variation. So it's a mess, a complete and utter mess. So I was rather surprised to find that actually when it comes to obesity and weight and appetite, <coughs> the sense of hunger, it turns out that there is a genetic variant which is quite common 
which is some people will have in this room will have one bush and some people will have another. Um, and it turns on a mouse mutant that's called FTO. Now, FTO stands for fused toes. Okay, here's Mickey Mouse. Well, you can't see his toes, but you can see his hands. You see you've only got three fingers, presumably three toes, on every foot. Okay? And in the mouse, this gene causes the skeleton to be altered as they grow, and the, tube, the, the toes to fuse together. Now, once you've got a gene in one creature, you can search for it in seconds um, in the databases and find it in another. And it's been found in humans, and just to tell us how little we understand, FTO in humans is an appetite gene. Now, what's the time between fused toes and appetite? I have no idea, and neither does anybody else, but that's what it is, and it comes in two variants. Um, there are two, again, about a third, a third, and a third. About a third of us have got two copies of the letter T in this gene. Uh, a third of us have two copies of the letter A. The rest of us are about equal, uh, about one of each. And you'll see that actually, on average, people who are AA um, weigh, on average, about two and a half pounds more than people who are TT. And that's because they have to eat more in order not to feel hungry. And the effect is big. When babies are born, whatever their genotype, they weigh exactly the same. Within six months, the um, AA babies weigh a pound more than the TT babies because they drink more milk from their mothers. So the effect is big. Okay. Um, now, what, what's the relevance of it to the obesity epidemic? I would say zero, really. Because if you really gorge yourself, you're going to become obesity, obese come what may. In the days of food shortage, this was quite irrelevant. Nobody ever had enough to, enough to eat. Um, they didn't have a chance to go out and have more than they needed. For the mice with leptin, exactly the same. Um, a wild mouse with leptin deficiency can't go out and eat itself stupid. There's no food. So again, nature and nurture are very much um, working together. So let me work towards the end of this talk. What about leptin? Is it a digestive um, effect? Is it is it an enzymatic effect in the gut, maybe? Something to do with the liver? Nope. The gene is actually um, FTO. The FTO, the appetite gene, is in fact expressed in the brain. You can ask how much is it turned on, and you can see the places where it's turned on in the cortex, at the top of the brain, like the thalamus near the bottom, cerebellum. It's not turned on in the liver, it's not turned on in the spleen, it's not turned on um, in, in the intestine particularly, um, and certainly the fat. Um, it's, it's a brain condition, okay? You've got a pathological appetite, you say. And then, of course, is what people are really interested in. That's what they want to know. How much do genes alter your personality, your IQ, your musicality, um, your ability to come to Oxford or Cambridge? Okay. Um, all those, uh, all those uh, uh, positive or negative attributes that we all that we are also interested in, and that's a very, very difficult um, question in which to to, uh, to answer. It's worth noting, as we've already seen, that Galton's first book was called Hereditary Genius. That's what he wanted to know. He was convinced that geniuses like him uh, had fewer children than stupid people. Um, that's why it's called hereditary genius. He was, in fact, wrong. The opposite is true. Quite high, like people tend to have more children, but that's another story. Um, um, so that's what people are interested in. Now, when I was 11, I myself paid, to some extent, uh, the price for that, because in 1955, I into a secret, when I was 11, um, I sat at a genetic test. Now, it wasn't a DNA test, although had there been one available, they certainly would have used it. It was a test that came from the 1940s. Five Education Act, Four Education Act, which set up grammar schools. Okay, here's the test. It's called the 11 plus. I can only I can only find a, a Welsh an English version, um, which I could have done the Welsh one when I was 11. But I've forgotten it all now. Um, but uh, here's a, here's an exam from 1957. I choose one of the following subjects and write on our bonfire, my school friends. So you have to write an essay. Uh, then you have some nice questions. Not that easy, I would have said. Um, uh, in the question below, find the two words that are different from the others. Compliment, mock, unwrap, ridicule, and taunt. Okay. I think it's compliment and unwrap. Okay. I'm not sure. Uh, then, just to make life really difficult again, these horrible things I could never do of turning, turning, uh, turning things around. And the idea was, and it was in some ways a noble idea, that there was a pool of unrecognized biological talent out there in the British population that was not getting the education it deserved. 
and they would go to, they would be found, they were sent to special schools. Uh, there would be much schools of equal excellence, ho ho, called secondary moderns, where those were, whose talents turned more towards, uh, towards healing sacks of coal could be set to train to do that. And this was a crucial, many of you may remember, this was an absolutely crucial moment in any child's life. I passed the 11th class into grammar school, uh, my brother failed the 11th class. Um, and uh, failed the other class and became a bricklayer, which he now, well, he's now unemployed, but he was a bricklayer for most of his life. So clearly it was very, very important, and the, the, it, it was absolutely punitive. In some places, in Liverpool, for example, only one person in ten, kid in ten, passed the test and went to a grammar school. The other 90% were just dumped. And it's worth remembering that, um, that uh, when, when I did my A-levels, when I was 62, um, only one in a thousand of the students who failed the 11 plus in 1955 um, ever sat at A-level, and not one out of all the students who failed the 11 plus in 1955 um, went to Oxford or Cambridge in 1962. So this was a big, big, big effect. And I it was a good thing or a bad thing is another issue. But what's the, what's, the, uh, what's the logic behind it? The logic behind it was the opposite of horse racing. Find the good ones and give them, give them a prize. Let them go to grammar school. It would make equal sense if I find the stupid ones and make them, give them a prize and spend more money on their education. But that didn't happen. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what it actually means to say that your genetic, that your IQ, your intelligence, is, um, is, uh, has some genetic capacity. Everybody gets it wrong. Here's a very recent paper. I'd like to be up to date. This is PNAS, Proceedings of the Russian Academy of Sciences, last week or the week before. Um, this, the red section, is the heritability estimates for various human behavioural attributes. And the thing which is really weird, actually, and I often think about these heritability people, many of whom are very clever. Uh, there's a very good group at King's College who does huge amounts of work. It always comes, everything always comes out at 0.5. I mean, everything is 50% heritable. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? Um, uh, your of your GCSE scores compared to your you know, brothers and sisters, your parents, is about 0.6. IQ is about 0.55. Personality types is about 0.4. Everything is heritable. Um, that's the red section. But what does it mean? And once again, what it means is subtle and much less than many people think. Here's a, an, uh, an account in the German Science, which is the, one of the two top science journals in the world, uh, earlier this month, about that discovery. Latest news from Science, American Association for the Advancement of Science. How well somebody scores on a standardized test is based on a combination of intelligence, preparation, blah, blah, all those things. Uh, genes don't just influence your IQ, they do determine how well you will do in school. Okay? This is Fox News on the same thing. Genetics, not upbringing, is the main influencer in a child's IQ. The study says. Now, the Daily Mirror, which I think is a much better and more dependable source than, than uh, Fox News, I really do. I really do think that they have an almost identical headline the day before yesterday. But it doesn't mean that. It means that 60% you know, of the uh, the variation in the IQ in the population is due to genetics. If everybody had the same environment, it might mean something. But of course, they don't. And we know, of course, that heritability, science actually, rather than, in rather an embarrassed fashion, had to put out a correction. Uh, the item originally said that 62% of achievement was genetic. In fact, the research showed that 62% of the differences between students were genetic. So it's not the case that 60% of your IQ is genetic. It isn't. It simply isn't that. So what is it if it's not that? What can we say about the heritability of IQ? Well, it's like horse racing. It's there, but it changes. Um, in fact, if you look at the heritability of IQ in children, it's very low. 10% um, of the total variation is due to genetic variation. Uh, so much for the 11 plus. At the age of 10 or 11, most of the variation is the environment. If you live in a place with plenty of books, um, intelligent parents, a nice rich environment, um, then you're going to be fine. Uh, at the age of 20, it's about 0.4. When you get to my age, um, it's about 0.7. You get much more like your father and mother when you get old. Bad news, I'm afraid. <laughs> and that's true for many things. What's also true is that the heritability of IQ, just like horses on slippery tracks, a good parallel indeed, uh, is strongly related to family income. In the poorest decile, people who are desperately poor, the variation in IQ is genes have no effect at all. Nobody really succeeds in doing anything. Um, they've, they've, uh, it depends, the genes are irrelevant. In the top 
uh, 10%, the genes become much more important because they've got the environment in which they can show their effects. So again, it's kind of an important uh, phenomenon. And some interesting recent stuff I dug out this morning, actually, uh, about the persistence of grammar schools in Britain. Here's the one I went to, and it wasn't in fact a particularly good school, it was a bloody awful school. Um, that's where I went. But Kent, for example, has got grammar schools, uh, Lincolnshire's got grammar schools, there are little outbreaks of the pox all over, all over Britain here. And you can ask some questions about how well the grammar schools and selective systems work. They're supposed to take the best kids and give them the best education. Well, there's some interesting little messages. First of all, systems grammar schools, and these are the selective counties are shown in blue. Okay. The very richest kids do slightly better than in non-selective counties, shown in pink. Okay. But the poor do much worse if you've got a selective system, because only the rich get into grammar schools. Okay. So what it's actually doing is dragging down the overall achievement um, by giving them this, this difference in the environment. Now, the effect is often quite spectacular. Um, here's what's really interesting, I'm going to turn up again today. The nurture and IQ, free school meals, which is a statement of poverty, and performance. Okay? GCSE performance of schools with a high number of students receiving free school meals in yellow. Uh, if they're low results, above average. If they're high results, generally yellow. If you're poor, you do badly, except in London. And if in London, if you're poor, you do better than average. And that, I have to tell you, with a piece of naked political advertising, is due to the last Labour government. Because the last Labour government poured enormous amounts of money, perhaps too much money, into London education, school state education, because it was in such a desperate state. And it had a dramatic effect. Here's the average point score in relation to uh, deprivation ranking in different English areas. Okay? And uh, for GCSEs, poor places, lousy scores, rich places, high scores. London, totally, the effect is there, but it's, it's much, much flatter and much, much less striking. In other words, London schools are good, so that even in poor places, people who are, can do well uh, because they have a decent environment. Okay. So here we've got, again, a statement that the more you know about genetics, the more important the environment may actually be. And let me end up briefly in the criminal world, um, nobody gets things wrong, as I always do, and I'm putting them the law. Gordon, of course, was very interested in crime. It is easy to show that the criminal nature tends to be inherited. It's easy to show. That's a fated statement. Okay. Well, um, the strongest predictor of a boy going to prison is his father having been in prison. So, in that sense, that broad sense, that's true. Gordon was convinced that there were genes, as we would say today, that were responsible for it. Well, maybe. These are Galton's images of, 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 of criminals, multiply printed. Every one of these is ten different criminals. And he admitted he couldn't tell them by the way they looked. But people still believe that genes are involved. And in some senses, they might be right. There's one famous and notorious system of a gene, called oxidase, which is involved in the transmission of messages across the synapses, the boundaries between nerve endings. Okay, and it comes in, it comes in a flavour where it doesn't work at all, and it's very rare. And the people who have that do get into terrible trouble in the law. But it comes in two variant forms. Okay, um, one of which is very active, and one of which is not. Now you can do a nasty experiment with molecular phrenology or brain science, as it's sometimes called. You can scan people's brains and show them pictures of flowers ask them to think beautiful thoughts. And then suddenly, without warning them, you show them some absolutely horrible picture of somebody being decapitated or a terrible um, car crash. And you ask what happens to the brain. Now, an awful lot of this brain stuff is perhaps a bit flaky. But this isn't, because what happens is, bam, a bit at the base of the brain, called the amygdala, right at the bottom of the vein, that lights up, okay? Um, you have this horrible response. Oh, God, the bottom of your brain, it's a kind of alarm center. You immediately think, what's going to happen next? Okay? And that's pretty well established. It turns out that people with one particular variant, and let's just look at men, um, the black lines here, with low activity, one of them in oxidase A, are much more liable to overreact, have a big bang in the brain if you see a, something nasty and violent, um, than people with high activity. One of the signs of having low activity is you can't drink red wine and you can't eat cheese. And when I take a when I take advantage of hospitality, and um, later you'll notice I don't drink red wine and I don't eat cheese, so don't be nasty to me because you may actually live to regret that. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I have very low levels of monoamine 
today's AI activity. And it turns out, nobody believed this, but it seems to be true, uh, that there's a classic nature-nurture gene interaction here. Uh, this is a big survey in New Zealand of the relationship between boys, it's always bo uh, and violent offending, in relation to monoamine oxidase genotype, low and high, um, and, um, and, and, and the family environment, okay? If you've got a nice middle-class family, you're at this low risk. If you come from a broken family with you know, drinking and fights and so on, you're in the high risk. And you'll see, even for people with high activity, their risk of getting into trouble with the law goes up strikingly um, if, they're, uh, if they're in a low-risk family. Uh, but if you've got low activity and you have a high and you have a poor quality of the environment, then your rate of offending goes up by 70%. Okay. So again, nature and nurture working together. So what do you do with it? Do you genetically engineer people to give them monoamine oxidase activity? No, you improve the family environment, obviously. But what's interesting though is actually people are shocked by the idea of a gene for crime, but it's completely banal. We've known about it for years. Here's um, the hormone involved, testosterone, we all know what that does. If you take too much of this stuff, you end up like this. This really, this really is Steve Jones, who's a bodybuilder. I had a student come up to me once and say, have you, have you not been well, Professor Jones? <laughs> I've never looked like that. Uh, I'm not saying that this Steve Jones uses testosterone, but plenty of Steve Joneses or bodybuilders do, and it's very dangerous. But even if you don't take too much of it, it you Here we have the patterns of death uh, for men and women, men in red, women in blue. Uh, men die at a, at a higher rate than women at all ages, even at the age of four. Let's look at accidents. Four-year-old boys are killed in accidents at twice the rate of four-year-old girls. Men are struck by lightning at three times the rate of women. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Um, men are much less wor are worse at dealing with parasitic disease, and men are murdered much more than women. Okay? And of course, to make up for that, men murder much more than women do. Here's the murder rate by men and by women in relation to age in England uh, and Wales. And you can see men in red murder at a much higher rate than women do, particularly when they're trying to show what wonderful husbands they might make at around the age of 20, or trying to get rid of the opposition. There's the odd grumpy old men at the end there. And that's a universal global phenomenon. Here are the figures for uh, Detroit, exactly the same pattern. You might say, well, it's amazing, it just shows everywhere. But if you look at the vertical axis, the murder rates per million, not to 1,200 in Detroit, nor to 25 in England and Wales. And Detroit, of course, is filled with guns, with drugs, with gangs, with inequality. That's what really matters, okay? Uh, that's what we can do something about. But just to end up on my final slide, showing how irrational we are. Do we forgive these poor men who've gone out and committed murder because of their murder gene? No, we don't. We make them pay the price. Here's the, uh, the Home Office study on the penalties given in magistrates' courts for men and women for exactly the same rather minor offences. And you will see, in every case, men are given worse penalties for shoplifting, for violence, than women are. Now, the magistrates rationalised that, oh, she's got children at home, um, she was very polite to the court. But that shouldn't matter. You shouldn't be taking decisions based on somebody's biology, but people do. So in other words, first of all, the genetics is much more subtle than anybody thinks. And secondly, when we've got the genetic information, we're totally inconsistent in the way we use it. So perhaps what I should say is what this uh, subject means is not more scientists, but more theologians. So I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs>